Welcome to the season finale of season two of the Samwise Yaboinski podcast. Uh, Sam, how are you on this fine morning? I am excellent, Chris. I am very happy. I'm looking out of the window next to me and it is an absolutely beautiful sunny day and the light is in the trees, which I love looking at. I'm very happy. like to not ground our conversations in time, but I can't not because we have just two weeks left. I think my my birthday and Father's Day, kids are about to have school vacations, like everything is happening. And it is only even more fitting that we have our guest today. And I've said it before, but it bears repeating. I've got to work with a whole lot of church presidents over my almost two decades in ministry. And everyone is different and every relationship has been different. And I've been really, really blessed to work with some really exceptional people. And I have never, ever seen anyone who has served as president in this kind of moment. So, Sam. James came on right as the pandemic was starting. That was a challenging oh time. Yeah. I mean, and almost the entire pandemic has been our president. And to say that he's gone above and beyond uh, is, is an utter understatement. I'm sure he would have if we weren't having a pandemic and it would have just looked different. But this has been a truly exceptional time. Anyway, so Sam James, welcome, and we're so grateful uh, to have you here now just, what is it, five, six days before the annual meeting, which officially is the passing of the baton. Um, But yeah, welcome, Sam. So glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. And as we've done in um, lots of these podcasts, we just kind of start with hearing a little bit of your story and how you how you came to the church, how you found Unitarian Universalism. So, um, yeah, what were you sort of, what is a bit of the story? How'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina, <clears throat> a little town called Skyland. It was a whole, it was an incredibly different time. It was all uh, Southern Baptists, all very conservative religion, and it was everywhere. It permeated everything. Uh, people would ask two questions: Who are your parents, and where do you go to church? And that it was just—it was just part of my life. It was foreground and background all at the same time. I loved living in 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 a mountainous area, and one of the one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't raise my children in a mountainous area, just because of how creative it was. I mean, after school, my buddies and I we would go into one part of the woods or a forest or another. And we'd have vanquished all these foes time and time again. It was just a great way to grow up. Uh, But I didn't really care to go back to that. Um, In in college, one of the things you ask about that really shaped me, I was in a week-long interracial tea group, experience group. Uh, And for a Southern boy who had grown up with segregation all around, 
it was an eye opener. I think I was like 19 years old and there were uh, black peers, black adults, whites. Uh, and it, I saw women, I saw African-Americans, uh, the Vietnam War, all in different experiences. And I came out of that week and I thought, I don't know what just happened to me, but I want, I want more of it. It was a profound shaping piece. And when I went on to graduate school and did a doctoral program in psych, I focused on group psychology. And then I went and I was assistant director of groups at Mass General and taught groups at Mass General and Harvard for many years. I've been president of the American Board of Group Psychology. And it just shaped my life, professional life, in profound ways, which I'm ever grateful. But more importantly, is the personal side. And the personal side is wherever I am, wherever anyone is, they're part of a group. And it, I learned a lot that whatever groups I'm part of, I have responsibilities to, to make them better, to enjoy them, uh, to be able to draw on their resources, but also to contribute back. And whether that's a family, whether it's a church, whether it's a group of friends, uh, it doesn't really matter. We all, I, in my bias, we all find ourselves in groups and to the degree we manage our groups, we manage our lives well. And to the degree we cannot manage our groups well or is, 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 is where we really struggle. And it's one of the reasons I believe in, in a spiritual community. I never want to go back to the conservative uh, Christian background. I, one of the reasons I came to Boston after I graduated from the University of North Carolina was to go to Andover Newton. And I was there from 1970 to 1973. And during those three years, I really looked seriously at the whole notion of Christianity because it had been such a ubiquitous part of my childhood. And I said, it doesn't add up. Doesn't make sense. Uh, the, the, the Jesus people, I think, were quite profound. But once the Gentiles got involved, it all changed and became corrupt and is corrupt till today. And I wanted no part of it. So I dropped out of any kind of organized religion for quite some time. Jackie uh, really didn't see it all that way. We went to Plymouth Church for a while. She was interested and I was accommodating. And we realized neither of us really were Trinitarians. So we decided on a lark, a clearly a lark, to try a First Church. And I was very grateful, though it took me about 10 years, honestly, to become grateful that there was a spiritual community that actually did not have a doctrine and did not have an organized way of um, informing its membership about how to participate. And so while we have been at First Church 30 some odd years, I would say my active participation has been only 15 of those years partly because of work uh, and partly because of ambivalence. But once I became less ambivalent, I became much more engaged. And I very much appreciate that there is a spiritual community for people who want to be involved with others, but want to sort of think it through for themselves. Yeah. There's so much I'm fascinated to dig into. So I want to jump to the beginning that you said it was the T group. Is that that first interracial group? How did you say yes to that? Like, how did that come up? 
I had gone to a um, uh, a week long sort of training. Yeah. In in the summer of '67, I believe it was, wow. and that was that was just part of it. Wow. And they had brought in a psychologist from Duke who was a, a group psychologist, and he led this, this group. I don't, didn't, I don't remember his name now. I don't remember the names of many people who were in that experience. But it was happenstance. Yeah. 100% happenstance. It's amazing. And, I, you know, uh, it's hard in some ways to imagine. I feel like the world is similar in some ways now, but we look back to 1967 and everything that was about to happen, everything that was in the midst of, of happening. Could you tell in that moment that the world was changing? Um, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Mainly, uh, you know, Vietnam changed so many pieces. So many of us, of us were draft agents and knew that, and we'd had friends die. So that was one piece that was there. My brother had been in Vietnam twice. Wow. He came home both times, but I, he came home changed. Wow. Uh, and so th- that was part. And the repression of gender and gender roles, that was lifting. So the whole sexual revolution was, was blowing up. The, the music <laughs> right, the right. music is, speaks for itself. <laughs> and it was sort of the voice of all of this. Yeah. And then you had all the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. And so the background, it had felt like an unraveling, not unlike now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was fascinated by it then, but just because of my age, the unraveling. I'm terrified of it now just because of my age (laughs) of the the unraveling. I think we'll find our way through it just as we did through then. Uh, But it still was sort of challenging. But at that point, I found it more kind of exciting. And so then when you started Andover Newton, did you think you were going into ministry or were you already looking at psychology or how did that? I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Okay. Um, I... I think I entered Andover Newton quite honestly to to look at it. I, I certainly uh, wasn't going to go to a theology school in the South. So the choices were between Andover Newton and Harvard, and they really were much different. But Andover Newton is quite small. Mm. Uh, and I think at that point, Harvard may have been too secular for me. Uh, but Andover Newton still was a predominantly Christian uh, Baptist congregational. But there are also lots of, uh, of rabbinical students. There are atheists. There, there are UU students there. And the faculty really didn't particularly care what you believe, but you better be able to, to, to document it. They were more yeah. interested in good thinking than right thinking. Mm. Yeah. But along about my second year, I, as I started putting the different pieces together, I said I'm in the wrong place. Hmm. But two pieces, uh, two facts held, held me there. One was I was drafted, and if I left, I was going to be in Fort Benning, Georgia within 90 days, and that just really frightened me. Hmm. And the second was I had a professor who said, if you leave in the middle of a degree, you will spend a lot of time defending to any other school why hmm. they should accept you. Yeah. And he was right. And Andover Newton had a very good pastoral psychology section. So I took a lot of courses in that. And then when I went to BU, they recognized that as a, as a master's. So 
that my time was well spent. I am ever grateful for, for theology school because I'd never experienced such intellectual rigor. Mm. It mm. was challenging. Mm. And I was a good student, and it was still very, very challenging. Uh, and it taught me a, a sort of a mental discipline that I use today that I'm very, very grateful for. And they weren't mad at me that they had spent time and money educating me, and I didn't want to go into the route that they were planning for me. Uh, and it was other than being a three-year <laughs> master's and then having to do a five- to six-year doctoral program, I mean, it was a, quite a way station, but a, but a good way station. Yeah. I always tell people I, one of my favorite things in ministry is, is connecting with people on their way into formation. And I always tell them that you're saying yes to the process and chances are you're going to end up in a different place than you're imagining you will now, uh, but that you say yes to the process and then you just keep opening to it as it unfolds. Yeah. And when I, I started assuming that I would be doing ministry like I am now, but my first six, seven years was as a minister of religious education, which was not in my plan going through it. But in those first couple of years and serving a church in Oakland as a youth minister and then really finding some traction in a in a church very similar to First Church out in Berkeley, where I ended up serving on the multi-staff team, where I learned a lot of what I'm doing now. Um, but that was not my plan going in. And, you know, you just sort of open to the process. Mm. Um, so the other uh, follow-up question I wanted to was, was about groups. And I think that's so fascinating. You know, one of the most beautiful things I think we do and really thriving parts, you know, during the pandemic and even before is around our, is around our small groups. And I think of so much of our committee work also is just that magic of groups coming together. And, and I wonder if, you know, what was it about that dynamic? I mean, was it grounded in that initial group experience you had or is there something else? Can you say more about the dynamic that really captivated you about working with groups? I, my family was fairly dysfunctional. Mm. And I think that that learning and those experiences gave me tools to be able to negotiate groups in a meaningful way. For example, yeah. if I was in a wrong group, I have some idea about how to get myself out mm -hmm. in a fairly constructive way. But also in the groups that I'm in to make them work. I mean, Jackie and I have been married 52 years. Wow. And so, but that's... But uh, yeah, I, using that information to, to just understand stress and hardship, uh, to understand resources, uh, resilience, etc., and that you know groups mature as people uh, face hardships, mm. and if they successfully face hardships, then there starts to be a a um, a core of trust and belief in one another. Yeah, and I think if we look back over the pandemic, this group. First Church has faced enormous hardships. Yes. And yes. part of our task has been to make sure that we faced our hardships honestly and that we were successful. Yeah. And when we weren't successful, that we were able to admit we didn't get that one right. Wow. And to trust the body politic and yeah. the body politic of First Church has shown up over and over and over again from pledges to people doing different tasks. Uh, and, and and being quite generous with their time and their resources. And so, I mean, I look at First Church and I think this is a very healthy group to be part of. It's really fascinating. I don't, I don't think I knew that 
about your past, but it really makes sense about how your leadership has been during this time, you know, of navigating. Because one of the fascinating things about presidency, about church leadership, is you're not just navigating the group of the board. And one of the things I love about churches is basically it's this large group of groups. So there's a fractal sort of thing to it where, you know, how we function as the executive team, which is, you know, uh, members of the board and staff. But then also when you look at then the whole board functioning, but then also all the committees, there's all of these different groups. And I've been really, you know, grateful and challenged by being a resource to a lot of other congregations. And when I look at some of what's gone wrong and some of what's landed churches in deep, just embroiled, really difficult conflict, I think it's exactly that. You know, it's like group dynamics that, you know, just a little bit less attentive, a little bit less skillful. And all of a sudden it's like just spirals out of control and somebody, you know, gets blamed, somebody acts out anyway. Wow, that's super fascinating. And I loved uh, the last kind of follow-up was, I love what you, did you say, not indifference? How did you say that when Jackie came, how were you? You had some beautiful phrase about Oh, it. I, I was being a good sport, Yeah, basically. Mm. You know, I mean, <laughs> there are times in a marriage, you just sort of go along. <laughs> oh, I know that, yeah. Yeah, we all know that. It's, it's, it's a given. And, I, you know, if you ask Jackie, she'd say she's had plenty of times she's just gone along and been a good oh, sport, too. I think it's just part of the deal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, uh, much of my resistance was just fatigue. You know, on Sunday, I wanted to crash. I was tired. I'd put in 60-plus hours, and I just wanted to read the paper and have a second cup of coffee. Yeah, and, and we had kind of a, a a balance on that. There was a rhythm to which I didn't go, and I did go. It was it clearly mattered much more to her. She had grown up where the church was the center of her community. It was a really wonderful experience, and she was carrying that over as as an adult. And in many ways, I envy that. Uh, but in time, I found my own place within First Church. I got beyond my resistance and said, you know, this is a good place for me too. And what was what was the catalyst for that, or when did you sort of dig in? I think it was so incremental, Chris. It'd be hard to say. Right, right, I think right. it was nickels and dimes yeah. until I found my way into just getting to know a lot of the people. I mean, some yeah. of the best, some of our best friends uh, are members or were members of the of First Church yeah. and the like. So I don't think there was a nodal event around which I could say it was that. I right. think it was a series of of micros that added up to a macro. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So Sam, I've uh, I've been having some conversations recently with newcomers to the church who are trying to figure out, trying to navigate a transition uh, from a religious upbringing that's in a, a, a creedal, dogmatic tradition uh, to a religion which is whose whose idea of belief uh, is really quite different. And I think it would be interesting. To, to ask you, so how do you, you, you place an emphasis on the importance of a spiritual community? This isn't just a community, it's a spiritual community. How would, how would, how would you describe your spirituality in particular? How would you describe the importance of First Church as a spiritual community to you? How do you think of that? That's a really good question. I'm going to have to think about that one. Um, I don't know, Samuel, that there is a given answer. I think it's mm-hmm. a, it's an answer that 
kind of helps me meet needs as I face them. Yeah. I mean, we have an adult child who has a serious illness and just the way the community responds. Um, there is, I, I admire so many of the people at First Church in terms of their accomplishments and what they bring to bear, but they've got time and energy for one more at First yeah. Church. Yeah. To me, it isn't something about being uh, centric and focused around a iconic figure, a God, a Jesus, a Moses, or whatever. It's more specific to the, the, the movement of how this community is working. That's a little vague. Let's go back over the pandemic. People showed up when there were reasons not to show up. People did big things when there were reasons not to do big things. And they did them not because they must. They did it because they may. Mm. It gave them mm. back something in return to be yeah. part of a collective body that was greater than themselves. And I think that to me is is the spiritual part of just being part of something that's greater than than myself. Yeah. Uh, and to 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 be engaged with people that I would not meet in any other place. And to be fascinated by some of the things that they are doing. Mm. Yeah, I think that resonates resonates with me. And I think that probably resonates with quite a lot of people in the congregation for whom, you know, the the love and support and and showing up for each other that's part of the life of a congregation like First Church. I mean, that that's spiritual work. That's a spiritual practice in itself, right? Yeah. yeah. But I think for new members, it, it can't be underestimated how long it takes for that to occur. Mm. Mm. You know, it's years. That takes years to for that to really develop and to, to be part. And I think joining any group is tough. Getting over the threshold, not because one is hazed, but just because you really don't understand how this crowd works. And I think mm-hmm. coming in with the conundrums of a, a religious past and am I going to be conscripted into thoughts, beliefs, actions I really don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And given a chance to heal, I mean, I really think one of the reasons I'm a Unitarian is my father. And I, you know, as a boy, I would—I never heard of Unitarian Universalism. Uh, but I was with my father, and he was a tall guy. And we, <laughs> I remember that I was probably ten years old, and he had introduced me to these people who were just extremely fundamentalist and almost went into proselytizing. And I think my father was alarmed because how taken I was by them. And he bent down and whispered in my ear, Sammy, don't take these people so seriously. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I look back years later and sort of think that was a permission. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't take these people so seriously. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I, I laugh about it. I only thought, made this connection a few years back, that there was some wisdom in his concern that I was a little bit taken by these folks, and he was trying to protect me from them. And little did he know that he was also giving a permission that years later would have a lot of relevance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I often reflect that I'm lucky to have been born where I was because I could easily be a pretty serious hellfire brimstone preacher. (laughs) That's a little hard to believe, Chris. It's hard to imagine that. I have to say, given that like 
<laughs> I know your preaching style pretty well, so do you, Sam. But, but I, I'm trying to imagine Helen Brimstone from yeah. Reverend Chris Jablonski. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not saying. Well, I got to keep something for year four. I got to keep something fresh. Um, so yeah, so we we can also touch base. Think some of the interesting conversation around you know, what of the, what of the principles or any of the sources have been particularly, uh, you know, resonant for you? Um, <laughs> to me, Unitarian Universalism is American civil religion. Mm. And our principles are so American, mm. so solidly democratic, so in keeping with the developing American culture. It's awful hard for me to think of our neighbors in, in Transylvania as looking at these principles and saying, say what? Mm-hmm. You, you, you guys really believe that? I mean, I haven't been there. I'm projecting. But it's, it, it's, these are such American principles about justice and goodness and fairness and democracy and the, the interconnected web of life and all of these things. So I, not a one, no, no particular one stands out. It's hard for me to believe that anyone who grows up in the American culture wouldn't endorse all of them. Mm. What concerns me is that all of those are under some level of attack yeah. and being challenged. Mm. Uh, and the, they fit together. So to select one out and, and, not, and not all of them seems is a, is a little bit hard for me. But I'm more concerned about this sort of movement towards authoritarianism that we seem to be having in our country. Um, Grateful for people like Heather Cox Richardson, who points out over and over again how this has happened many, many times. Mm -hmm. And the country has found its way out of it. So I and I get a little suspect that when the foundations of a spiritual community are are resting on the foundations of 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 a federal government, you know, to what degree are we overly subscribed by our country and less differentiated by it? And to me, the role of a religious and a spiritual community is to be far more differentiated so we can be prophetic. Mm-hmm. And prophetic mainly just in terms of holding up a, a way of thinking about things. Diversity. I mean, look at the American principles. If you are a white male of my generation, you're the one of the most privileged people in the world because the rules were written for, for guys like me. Mm-hmm. And I was in my 50s before I'd made that connection. Yeah, I worked hard. I went to school. I did a lot of things. But I was fairly confident that doing all that was going to have a positive return on investment. Mm-hmm. And it did. Uh, if I'd been a... Uh, Young man, young uh, black American born in 1948, uh, you know, it, it did everything I did. I doubt that the outcome would have been the same. Or where I grew up, there were an awful lot of Cherokees around. It was a triracial area. And oddly enough, there were not that many black families because slavery never took in the mountains. Mm-hmm. It was more orchards and dairy farms. And, you know, you don't need large populations of workers. In those areas, so in terms of, it was just a very small African-American community, but there were many, many, many Cherokees who lived in unbelievably abject poverty back in the Smokies. They're out of sight, mm-hmm. uh, pushed out of sight. And, you know, you, you, in, in time, you have to make peace and understand what where you come from. 
And that to me was just enormously sad and one that I was not as a child even aware of, other than that there are these poor Cherokee Indians living way back in the mountains. Mm. Uh, so I, I look upon those principles as more an American than I do as a Unitarian. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating. And I, and I appreciate your point of these ideals and this fabric being under siege. Uh, I think it's, I was just talking with, I mean, for a long time, I've been talking with people at church about this, but was just talking with somebody just this last Sunday, um, you know, and it's, we're definitely in, in an inflection point. We're definitely in a, in a complicated moment, especially, I mean, we're in the middle of this rash of gun violence, which has just been shocking and not shocking. And, you know, part of this whole trajectory where, I mean, to me, I, I think it, it really speaks to the, the purpose and the point of, of having this prophetic voice and having this connected community that's, you know, really grounded in I mean, I think sort of weaving back into what we were talking about before, some of the theological differences too, we have this, one of my favorite fancy theological words, you know, realized eschatology, mm. which is this idea that the kingdom of heaven is here and now. Mm -hmm. And so we're not concerned with preparing our souls for a long hereafter while we would affirm that if one of our coming of age kids wanted to share that on a coming of age service, we say, all right, that's not everybody's belief in this community, but that's wonderful. But really what we, what we do see is that it's our job to create that here and now. Yeah. And so we have to, we're compelled to remain attentive and awake to all of these challenges. And that's been really hard in these last couple of years, you know, to, to just over and over again, not to shut it down, not to turn it off, not to walk away. But to ask, okay, you know, knowing that our community is grounded in this reality, you know, in this moment, in this world, you know, what can we do? And I've been really super grateful um, for the work of our social action committee, but also by extension, so many of our people, like I was just in touch with Dorothy Stoneman with the Beyond Ferguson group who, you know, are connected to people on the ground in Buffalo Black organizers in Buffalo who are looking to create resources and really meet this recent, um, you know, uh, racist uh, action and tragedy with some grounded response. And so it's as much as it's overwhelming, I think it's it's a really, you know, nurturing and kind of life giving to me part of who we are. Um, yeah. Wow. Another another thing, uh, Sam, that, that that actually that you were saying that resonates with me is that um, one respect in which the values articulated and the principles is under attack um, is not not I think from the government, but from the whole the way our way of life has changed with technology. So, of course, one of our principles. Uh, that we just mentioned is the, you know, the interconnected web of all existence. And it's interesting that interconnected web, of course, these are two words that have a quite different significance for us living in 2022. And especially, of course, for young people, young people growing up, you know, um, they learn how to use an iPhone before they learn how to write 
yeah. by hand. And 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 it's interesting that that what we're observing and what we're what we're experiencing is um you know is, is that people are feeling increasingly uh, almost abjectly disconnected and yet and yet on the face of it they're more connected than they've ever been i mean you can you can you can talk to you can text your friend you can text your grandmother across the on the other side of the planet people are more interconnected in one way than they've ever been before and yet people are more lonely and especially young people especially our youth right they're going through this 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 sort of epidemic of despair and loneliness and 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 I know that this that this will seem like a funny idea. There's a phrase I like. Um, I don't know if you've come across it. In in but uh, the phrase demonic parody. You know, there's this idea that, for example, hell is a kind of demonic parody of heaven. Um, and, and I think that our interconnectedness through tech is a demonic parody of the kind of interconnectedness that is real, right? That is right. that is the real web of connection between human beings and between all living things. And, 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 and I, and for me, part of, um, what, what being a UU and, and, and growing in a UU congregation is about, is about discovering that real web, those real connections and not the fake ones that we're, that we, that flash up on our screens and make us actually lonely. Um, so, so that's, that's a, that's a larger phenomenon than politics, but I, I just think that's, that's, that's something important I think to come back to. I think our small group ministries really ad- address that. Yeah, yeah. You know, to be able to break that isolation. So I, one of the pieces that I've been most concerned about, and Chris and I have talked about this, and it's been a real a big theme within the board, is the isolation in the past two years of mm-hmm. our members. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think if there was any driver around the board and the staff it's is how do we break that isolation or at least provide an alternative to that isolation yeah. of the past two years. And people have responded uh, to that. And I think ultimately many of us just got zoomed out oh, yeah. so that even though it was a, a venue for breaking the isolation, it became its own kind of, of uh, challenge uh, to manage. And I think in many times it, it was it made me resentful. Because here we go again on Zoom, <laughs> as opposed to being in person, as opposed to right. being in person. Yeah, I and think so we can all agree. It reminded me of the isolation in a way that, as opposed to soothing it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you. It's, thank you, Sam. Ends up thank being you. so perfect that you're the season finale of this. And I know. And thank you, everybody who's been listening. We will come back again with another fresh season. Uh, in the fall after some real, real, real time off <laughs> and rest. Uh, <laughs> but it's been really fun. And thank you, Sam. Has. Samuel. Sure. Samuel, you've done so much good work with making all these happen and and all the good editing. So um, oh, thank you. It's been really well, fun. Well, about the about the editing. So uh, uh, I'll leave it in the recording. There was a loud beeping that you guys heard heard earlier. And that was my suitcase showing up that got, that never that I, I got off a plane the other day from visiting my mother and the suit my suitcase wasn't there and it just got delivered to my apartment so that's a cause for celebration. <laughs> but not not only was it not there, say where it was. It was in Iceland. Yeah, Iceland. Yeah. yeah.
The suitcase yeah. had a little adventure. It little doesn't say adventure. my suitcase just had, just just returned just returned home from his adventure. So there we go. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, wonderful. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Samuel. Thank, Thank you, Sam. Everybody. Thanks for including me. It's been fun. Yeah. This has been great. All right.